Welcome to Behind the Schemes, a conversation about protecting our planet's precious wildlife from commerce, corruption, and counterfeit cures. This is Risha with Behind the Schemes, and in this episode, we're talking about ivory transparency and sustainable utilization with Susie Watts, an independent wildlife consultant who grew up in West and East Africa. There has been a significant amount of attention focused on African elephants today, but this situation isn't new. Can you tell us about the significance of CITES COP7? You're actually making me feel very old, Risha, because <laughs> I just I just have this sense of deja vu, you know. It's it's the same thing. Well, it's it's the same thing all over again, but but with some differences. Back in the 1970s and 1980s, you had massive uh, poaching of elephants. You probably know that between 79 and 89, Africa lost uh, half, approximately, of its elephant population, um, co- you know, continent-wide. Um, the, main, the main buyers then were Japan, Europe, and the United States, which in some ways was actually quite good because those were countries where there was already, at least in terms of the US and Europe, there was a a sense of um, compassion for animals and also a sense of caring about environments that were not your own, if you like. And so trying to get the message out to consumers uh, back then was considerably easier than it is today. Um, Even in Japan, which you probably probably wouldn't think of first on the list of countries where consumers really care about wildlife, even there, um, the, the consumption of ivory dropped enormously around, you know, the time of the ban. Um, you also had another, another different um, sort of scenario in which a lot of entrepots were used for partially carving ivory before forwarding it on to the consumer states. There was this ridiculous law in Hong Kong where that you couldn't import raw ivory, but you could import worked ivory. But the word worked was never defined. And back then, we, dis- we were doing some uh, global investigations, and we discovered a whole bunch of ivory carving factories in the United Arab Emirates, where they were literally just using uh, machinery to stamp um, sections, cross sections of tusk, to create very rough hanko, you know, the Japanese... Um, name seals that were responsible for around 40% of the trade back Mm -hmm. then. And because that was then considered worked, they were legally importing it into Hong Kong. Uh, A big loophole. A major loophole, yes. (laughs) Um, And so, so you had all that going on. And then, of course, as you always do, you had the political situation. Uh, And that, again, was very different. You had had the beginnings of the idea of sort of community um, management of natural resources uh, in Africa, which grew really out of, mostly out of Zimbabwe, at least initially. Um, And they were trying to put together a program which later became Campfire, where communities would allow trophy hunters to come in and shoot elephants and and they would, in theory anyway, benefit. Uh, And they also got very excited about the idea of of communities benefiting from international trade in ivory. And it was kind of bogged down in bureaucracy and so on. But of course, towards the end of the 80s, when 
the the writing was on the wall in terms of there's going to be a ban or at least there was a lot of discussion around a possible ban uh, campfire uh, speeded up um, quite significantly so that they could get it in place in time to be able to lobby against the ban by saying oh but these poor people are going to starve to death if they can't have ivory but of course the whole thing was nonsense because people were not getting money from ivory anyway no matter where it was taken from, all the money from international trade in ivory was going into central treasury. Hmm. So that was that was part of the whole politics, the sort of, you know, um, the, the north-south divide, I suppose. And so in that sense, I suppose COP7 was, was very significant in terms of polarizing CITES, not, not exactly, but, but basically into north and south, where the south characterized uh, the north as... You, you lost all your wildlife, now you're trying to tell us what to do with ours. Uh, you are preventing us from developing. Those kinds of issues. And in fact, those are still around today. So COP7 was very significant, um, not just for the elephants, but for the whole sort of political direction of CITES, if you like. Hmm. Is there any evidence to support the theory that ivory stockpile sales benefit wildlife conservation, because that seems to be one of the arguments, well, it's going to benefit wildlife conservation, it's going to benefit communities, but we saw in the example you gave above that it certainly didn't work at that time. Does it work? Is there any evidence to support that this works? There isn't, no. And going back to campfire, um, yes, you're right, it did, it did kind of fall apart, and unfortunately, the reason why it fell apart was that donor funding was removed. Um, the, the problem was, well, there were lots of problems, of course, but a lot of these sort of international NGOs who got behind the idea of campfire, I think were extremely naive, um, extremely, what shall I say, unable to recognize that poor people are the same as rich people, only they don't have any money. If you see what I mean, mm -hmm. the same impulses mm -hmm. that guide us, guide them. And so you had, of course, poor communities dividing into those who had power and were determined to keep it for themselves and those who didn't have power. Uh, those who were able through contacts and family and so on to grab more than their fair share uh, and to leave others without. And so you had situations where I remember talking to a head, headman at a village uh, near Hwangi National Park in Zimbabwe. Um, and he told me that an elephant had been shot by a trophy hunter, and you know that they pay tens of thousands of dollars to shoot an elephant. And all that his family had received in that year from trophy hunting of elephants was three US dollars. Meanwhile, there were, there were village chiefs driving, well, not so much village chiefs, more councillors, people at the councillor level, local council level, driving around in Mercedes. But on the, the issue of, of stockpile sales generally, in 97, uh, when the elephant populations of those uh, four so uh, southern African countries were downlisted and we agreed that under certain conditions there would be ivory trade, um, a one-off sale to Japan, one of the stipulations in the documentation that came out of that COP was that all the countries that sold their ivory stockpiles would have to report back to CITES with a proper inventory of what was sold, how much it was sold for, and what it was used for, most particularly. That's never happened. And so 
you know, and, and as time goes on, we have asked, I can't tell you how many times, you know, we need to see what happened to the money from the ivory. It's perfectly simple. But you just get this brick wall. Um, we do know, I don't particularly want to go into details, but we do know that there's one particular country that by the time the second ivory sale took place, which was, what, nine years after the first one, still had half the money left from the previous one. Uh, you know, and, and, and this, this whole thing was, was based on such nonsense anyway. Uh, we desperately need this ivory. Everyone's going to die of hunger if we don't sell this ivory, more or less, you know. Um, and yet it's just sitting there, the money, and they don't know what to spend it on. What, what do we do with this money? And meanwhile, of course, um, those countries are, were receiving at that time uh, hundreds of millions of U.S. dollars from tourism. I mean, the, the money from, from, from non-lethal tourism in Southern Africa makes anything you can get from ivory trade literally look like pocket money. It, <clears throat> you see, because this whole thing is not actually about money at all. It's about winning the argument. It's about the South standing up for itself and saying, we do what we want to do and nobody else can tell us. But of course, that overlooks the, the whole concept of CITES, which is that we all get together, all the countries, and make joint decisions. You know, if you look at the European Union trying for three COPs in a row to get a shark species listed and being defeated every time, their own endemic shark species. And so you, you, you get these ridiculous situations where Botswana or South Africa or Zimbabwe, who, who are perfectly you know, entitled to vote on a, a, a species that doesn't occur either on their land or in their waters, if they're, if they're uh, coastal states, uh, which, is, which is how it should be. But, but voting against just on principle, because the European Union perhaps voted against something for them. So it, it just, just becomes, you know, very, very political. But as I say, uh, as far as I'm aware, there's never been any information on what the money from the ivory trade has done for either for communities or for elephant conservation. Interesting. And just to go back to what you said, the, there still is no accounting of the money that was generated from the 1997 ivory stockpile sale. No. no. Huh. No. And I, I'm, you know, this time around, I don't think there was any stipulation that they should, that they should um, report back on what had happened to the money from the 2008 sale. Uh, presumably because they didn't get it the first time around, so why would they the second time? Oh my gosh. Huh. So, speaking of ivory stockpiles, what is the significance of countries destroying their confiscated ivory stockpiles? Because we're seeing a lot of that lately. We are indeed, and I think it's a great thing. A lot of countries will... If you like, the, their entire focus when they're looking at their wildlife and valuing their wildlife is on their body parts. You know, this is what you can get for ivory. This is what you can get for rhino horn or, or, or indeed the hunting issue. This is what you can get for a dead rhino. Um, and the more you do that, the more, of course, you're promoting the idea that the only value of these animals is when they're dead and bits of them have been chopped off. Um, I can remember, just, just kind of digressing for a moment, I can remember 
when all the arguments about trade or not trade in ivory were raging, it was shortly after um, the the ban in, in 1989, I can remember going into Wangi National Park and all I had to pay was five US dollars and I could spend the entire day there. Imagine if they valued their wildlife properly, I mean their live wildlife properly, the whole scenario would be completely different. You know, if you imagine yourself in, in, in a rural community, what, what are the people living around the, the wildlife aware of? They're aware that that thing sticking out of a rhino's face or the tusk sticking out of an elephant's head are what is valuable about that creature. If the tourism industry were restructured properly so that people genuinely benefited from non-lethal tourism, the, the, the world would be a completely different place. Destruction of stockpiles, I totally support it um, because what you're saying is this stuff is not worth anything. And that's the message that you need to, to promote to people. Yeah, absolutely. Sustainable utilization, I think, has a part here. And that's a, that's a really popular catchphrase. What is the story behind <laughs> sustainable utilization? I mean, mm. is it, you know, is it a euphemism for something or what, <laughs> what, what do people, what do people need to know about sustainable utilization? <laughs> well, I guess uh, it, it, the seeds were sown, I, I guess, at the 1972 Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment. But it was kind of a slow burn. Um, and it picked up really with the uh, 1980 World Conservation Strategy that, that IUCN uh, published, where the term sustainable development was coined. And this was then built on a, a few years later um, by the Brundtland Commission. And out of all this, the, the term sustainable utilization arose. Um, you know, poverty was was seen as a, a, a major driver of environmental degradation, and obviously it still is. Um, and so the concept of sustainable utilization became sort of intertwined with development issues and with pro-poor policies. And then, of course, you had the, the, the Rio Earth Summit in 92 and Rio Plus 10 in, in 2002. And I think that what has developed out of all this, at least in the, con in, the, in the context of international trade in wildlife and its products, has become somewhat distorted, I would say. I mean, there are certain Southern African countries that use it as a vehicle for, for promoting international trade in endangered species, more or less regardless of the risks. And of course, generally speaking, they're, they're supported within CITES by East Asian countries who obviously see trade as a, a good way of getting their hands on people's stuff. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so, of course, you know, this is just a shorthand way of, of saying, you know, that it's all about the politics again. Mm -hmm. But it, it's, it's gained a lot of momentum, sustainable utilization, because it sounds so good, like motherhood and apple pie. Who's, <laughs> you know, who is going to argue against sustainable utilization? But nobody ever questions the, sus the sustainability part of it. Um, which, which I find deeply aggravating. Yeah, it does seem to be a lot more about the utilization, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it's been, you know, in some ways it was kind of a backlash, I feel. Um, my colleagues might disagree with me on this, but, but because of, of, I think, what I was talking about earlier, about this, this view that the North was trying to impose its values on the South and trying to stop it from developing and so on, that... Um, 
in in a sense it was a it was a, a backlash it was saying we're going to do this this is a new a new broom sweeping away all these awful northern protectionists and finding our own way and you you know back in the 80s and 90s you kept hearing the term an african solution to an african problem you know it was repeated over and over again as a way of saying you know hands off we'll do what we want um and that backlash has i think actually been very successful uh, from their perspective because they've managed to get the um strategic vision of cites itself changed um it used to be uh, you know preventing over exploitation of species uh, via international trade and it's now promoting sustainable trade which of course is a whole other thing it certainly um and, is. and it, yeah <laughs> it, 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 in some ways you know but people like that people like the idea of oh here's a whole new idea that we can get get carried away with um and, and people people jump on it and 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 you know people have built entire careers on this now but my sense and i could be wrong is that it's kind of beginning to unravel when you look at some of the some of the scientific literature some of the peer reviewed stuff which is obviously much more uh, tempered let's say than the press releases that the same ngos will put out you'll see that they've begun to change their language a little bit and so they'll talk about a, a, a project which is based on community based management of natural resources and they'll say well you know maybe the species hasn't really benefited from it and there don't seem to be really very many economic benefits for the people but what it's achieved it is it has spread a sense of democracy it has empowered people so all these new criteria are coming in to replace the old ones or at least to be seen alongside the old ones because they kind of know that the old ones the, the old criteria cannot be met and so it's now it's all about empowerment and democracy well frankly you know and so that to, to my mind that's a sign of of weakness and it's a sign that they're finally realizing that maybe this pie in the sky dream of all these happy people living together and and sharing resources from things and nobody being corrupt and nobody carrying out illegal acts it's time to kind of let go of that and there's all these new sort of academics coming up as well writing i've just noticed this in the last sort of year or so new papers coming out um from from various types development people academics from from economists in particular questioning the the whole basis of of the idea that you can sustainably trade certain types of product um and enhance the species survival and enhance livelihoods Um so I think the next few years will be quite interesting. I agree. Well, thank you so much Susie for spending time with us. This is a very informative conversation and I again appreciate your time. You're welcome, Risha. You've been listening to Ivory Transparency and Sustainable Utilization with Susie Watts. This is Risha with Behind the Schemes. <laughs>